Hi there. This is the PowerPoint Tribe, where our vibe is faith and our food is the word. Prepare to be strengthened and encouraged through the teachings of God's word and the ministry of the Spirit. Thank you so much, uh, Minister Pipe. God bless you. Thank you for that warm welcome. Um, um, good evening, church. Please, I'd like to confirm if I'm audible enough, if you can hear me loud and clear. Please just kindly indicate it. I mean, thank you, Minister General. All right, praise God forevermore. Hallelujah. What a joy to be bringing us God's word today. Um, I would like us to, um, I would like to say very big thank you to our senior pastor, Pastor Daniel Gutsunde, and all of the associate pastors, the directors, the LFLs, and the LCs, and the entire DC, and by extension, the entire tribe. Thank you all for giving me the opportunity to bring God's word to us. Today. Amen and amen. I'd like us to pray as we start. Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for that which you are set to do in our lives tonight. We thank you for the instructions that you are about to receive uh, from you, O oh Lord. We ask that you bless us and you give us the capacity to be able to execute all of the instructions that we receive today. Lord Jesus, the Bible says the entrance of your word it brings life and it gives understanding to the simple. We ask, O oh God, that you may not make us of simple hearts to be able to comprehend and put yourself in to the end, O oh God, that we will get reality that is consistent with God. Thank you, Heavenly Father, because everyone tonight is blessed to be here. Thank you for putting up your word and the ministry of the Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, we are praying. Amen. And let the redeemed pipe be bold. Amen. Amen and amen. Praise God forevermore. So, welcome to the fifth installment of the lessons from Elijah series. Praise God forevermore. Uh, so we have quite a bit to cover tonight. And so I, I will not be doing uh, an exhaustive summary or a summary of what Pastor has said in the last uh, uh, past four installments. And I believe by now, we should have listened to those installments at least three times by installment. And that means if since Pastor has stopped from storming by now, we should have listened to lessons from Elijah at least nothing less than 12 times. Nothing less than 12 times. All right. Praise God. So, as we continue in our journey, the lessons from, from Elijah, you know, while I was um, planning for this teaching and uh, preparing my, my sermon notes, um, there is this African proverb that, that I just began to have some perspective about. And so it was it was um, it was quoted again by Chinwa Chibi, but it was not um his original um quote. So the proverb goes this way it says until lions begin to have their own story and skills of the hunter always will fight the hunter. And I know many of us are, are, are quite familiar with this African say until lions begin to have their own experience uh, the tales of the hunt most times will always glorify the hunter. And you see one of that thing one of the things that that or that program gives to us is, is perspectives, perspectives, perspectives. You see, and, and you see many times when we read the Old Testament text, um, because of our lack of perspective for what God is trying to do, many a times we tend to misunderstand the Old Testament text much more than we do the New Testament text. And, and that level of misunderstanding has actually caused some people to avoid it altogether. 
and by avoiding it altogether, the lessons in there that is supposed to lead to our edification and perhaps move us closer towards glory, we miss out on it simply because we lack perspectives of what God is trying to do. Now, to further buttress this point, I, I would just like to tell us a story. And I'd like us to pay close attention to this story because this story is actually going to form the basis of everything that we're going to be learning tonight. Amen. So once upon a time, yeah, somebody will say time, time. But, but just imagine um, a father and a young son uh, standing outside their compound. And perhaps the father was just talking to a friend and, and they were just distant. And all of a sudden, uh, because the father, so the son was standing close to the father, a very young boy, say the age of Sikam, because all of us know Sikam, for example. And the father was just having a conversation with a friend. And all of a sudden, from a distance, a stray dog, uh, preferably a pit bull, was just charging towards the son. And you know how those dogs are vicious, was charging towards the son with so much fury. And the father just caught the sight of that dog. You know, this thing where you're looking at something, but you're not really looking at something like your blind sight. And he just caught a sight of that dog. And at the time when the father caught the sight of that dog, the dog was just like two meters away from the sun with his mouth wide open, ready to pounce on that young boy. You know how those dogs, especially the ones that are not chained, can, can be. And coincidentally, there was a very big, metal rod just lying somewhere within the reach of the father now instinctively if you are the father and i'd like us to write it in the title what will you do at that point like there is a rod and there is no time for you to take your son out of that place the dog was just one second away from biting him in such a way that that young man might be named or have a fatal injury that can perhaps lead to death. In this, so many of us, what would we do in that scenario? And you have a weapon, a rod, all right? If I said flying kick. <laughs> so, Caleb is typing, let me quickly get a few. Or um, if the dog with the rod, you will try something style. <laughs> nice, we Goliath that dog. So this is what the father actually did. The father took that rod, and he hit the dog with so much fury that he cracked the skull of the dog and the dog died on the spot. The dog died on the spot. Now, if dogs were the one writing the story of that event, the conclusion of dogs as far as that event is concerned would be that man is such a cruel creature uh, that has no sympathy for dogs. You say, man is such a cruel, cruel creature that has no sympathy for dogs. In fact, avoid men. So if dog historians were to chronicle that event, that would be the perspective they will write about that event, that man is wicked, man is brutal. In fact, they will not have anything nice to say about man. Guess what? Now, if the young man comes of age and begins to understand the gravity of the father's commitment to him in that event, the story of the young boy will be of love, of sacrifice, and of perseverance. Praise God. That will be the story of the boy. So that when the boy is writing a, an, an eulogy to his father, 
it will be saying, my father is loving, is kind. Now, when somebody begins to compare the two stories about the same person without considering the scope of the narrative, uh, some people might want to be sympathetic towards the dog and accept the narrative of the dog at the expense of the narrative of the boy. And you see, this further lends credence to the reason why a lot of people avoid many Old Testament texts. Oh, God said, kill this. So said, then God must be a brutal, bloodthirsty person. Because we are just seeing a perspective and we are not seeing what foiled that narrative. Amen. And because we do not get ourselves to understand what foils the narrative of their actions that many a times we see in the Old Testament, we therefore judge God of faithful. We therefore judge God of faithful. So tonight, eh, the aim of tonight's teaching eh, is to furnish us with sufficient and accurate narratives from the life of Prophet Elijah and how we can partner with God just like the prophet did in championing God's agenda within the spheres of our influence, thereby betting results that are consistent with the person of God. That's the aim. So, if you, like, like, Minister, like Minister Jumoke just put, the, the summary of what, we are, what I intend to do by tonight, in tonight's teaching is for us to have sufficient and accurate narrative about the person of God, the character of God. And by the time we begin to understand what, who the person of God is, his character, that will now begin to help us understand why God acts the way he did in certain scenarios and how we can leverage on the actions of God in order for us to bear results that are consistent with him. Praise God. Praise God. Are we still together? Yes, we are. Amen. So, that all of that is to say welcome to, to Bible study. Just tell somebody welcome to Bible study because now we are getting into the now we're going to be getting into the meat of, of, of um, tonight's teaching. So I'd just like you to welcome somebody to church. Amen. But while you are welcoming um, family or neighbor and welcoming them to church, please remember the story I shared. Let that story just be somewhere in your mind because I will be referencing it every now and then um, during this, um, the entire um, teaching. Praise God. Now, a little backstory will help us here because, you know, if you just jump to First Kings chapter um, 16, and you just begin to read from verse 29, you see in the 38th year of Asha, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And, and if you just read it like that, you might really not understand what led to Ahab being the king of Israel at that time, and why Elijah became a necessary character in the story of Elijah. Now, from the, I will not call it a rebellion, but from the separation of the northern tribe of Israel. So initially, huh, when you read First Samuel, you understand that there was a united nation of Israel, the united tribes of Israel. And the first king of that united tribe, like we all know, was Saul, the second king being David, and the last king of the united tribe of Israel was Solomon. Now, because of the things Solomon did, which we're going to reference later in this chapter, then God had to take the kingdom from him. And the reason why God did not take the kingdom in its entirety was simply because of his promise to David. Now, the first guy that became the king of Israel, now separated Israel, because now the United Nation of Israel has now become two nations. 
the northern tribe of Israel. So the northern tribe, having 10 tribes, still maintain the name Israel. While the southern tribe, which contained both Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, now took on a new name called Judah. Now, from the very first king, so the very first king after the separation of Israel, now referring to the 10 tribes, was King Jeroboam. And we see that in 1 Kings chapter 13. Now, the second king of Israel was King Nadab, the son of Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam was not a good guy. Nadab was not a good guy. Then the guy that followed Nadab was Basha. Basha killed many of Jeroboam's sons, and he became king. He too was not a good guy. And good in this context simply means that these guys were not dedicated to God, in service to God, committed to God. They violated all the terms God gave to Moses on how an Israelite was supposed to conduct himself, especially in matters pertaining to idolatry. So after Basha, we saw another king, the fourth king, Ella. Then after Ella, we had another king. The name of that king is Zimri. So in King Basha, you see that in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 27. Then King Ella, we see that in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 8. Then the fifth king was King Zimri. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 15. Then after Zimri, we now saw King Omri. Omri, we saw that in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 23. Now, if you notice, while the scripture was recognizing all these kings, aside the fact that all of them were ungodly, all of them, no, no, no single king in Israel from the separation was righteous. And I'd like us to hold that with our left hand. Right? It was still going to feature later during the course of this teaching. None of the kings of the northern tribe of Israel was righteous. Not one, not from Jeroboam, even down to Omri. Now, there's something we now see about Omri. I'd like us to open our Bible to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 23. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 23. There was something Omri did that would become highly significant during the course of this teaching. And I'll read from here. I'm reading from the King James Bible. Praise God forevermore. The Bible says, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and he reigned 12 years. But that's not where I'm going. The Bible says six years he reigned in Caesar. And verse 26 is where I am driving at. It says, the Bible says, and in the seventh year, and he bought, no, the, verse 24 says, and he bought the hill of Samaria from Shema for two talents of silver. Then he built the hill, he built on the hill and called the name of the city he built Samaria after the name of Shema, owner of the hill. Praise God forevermore. Are we still together? So what do we see about Omri? The first thing we see about Omri was that Omri decided to purchase an ear and build a city. The name of that city is called Samaria. And by the time we begin to read down, you now begin to understand that that Samaria, that city called Samaria, now became the capital of the northern tribe of Israel. Mm. That city that Omri built. So if you are looking for the origin of Samaria, this is where Samaria started from. It became the capital city. Now, every time when I read this, I remember that hmm, before Omri came on board, another guy built a city on a hill. And that guy was called David the king. David fought the Jebusite and he defeated the Jebusite. Then he took a land and he built the city, a city. And the name of that city is called Zion. 
the city of the living God. Now, watch this. Now, many years down the line, perverted kings, kings that were overly given to darkness, now decided to have a parallel city to Zion and only built a city. Now, remember, we have mentioned five, the first five kings. No significant feature in their life, apart from the fact that they did not serve God and everything. And so many warnings came upon them and many, many things. Those are not our focus today. But one of the things we saw, and Omri became the father of Ahab, Omri built a city, and the name of that city was Samaria. Let's keep going. We are, we are heading somewhere, and I would like us to just follow me closely. I'd like us to just follow me closely. Praise God. Now, then immediately after Omri, the next thing we now saw, this is in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. We now saw Ahab. And I'd like us to read that. The Bible says, in the 38th year, the Bible says, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. Mm. In Samaria, 22 years. Now, verse 30, now, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. That's Jeroboam, the first king of divided Israel, the son of Nebat. Then he took as wife the daughter of Ethbal, king of Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now, look at two significant events. Before Ahab, Ahab was the seventh king from Jeroboam. So he was the seventh king from the breaking away of the united Israel. Now, just before him, his father did something remarkable in that sense, not remarkable in a positive light. His father built a city called Samaria. Now, that was the high point of his father's reign. Now, he got to Ahab's reign. Ahab now went a step further. Ahab now, reigning in Samaria, Ahab now took a wife from one of the cities that God commanded Israel not to intermarry with. He took a wife from Sidon. Because the next thing we are going to be doing is that we are going to be investigating who the Sidonians are. Ahab took a wife from Sidon. And the name of that wife was Jezebel. And Ahab did two things. Ahab worshipped Baal and he set up the Asherah pole. Now, Baal is like the male god and Asherah is like the female god. And you see, one of the things we need to... So somebody might be asking, so Pastor so what's the essence of all this plenty backstory that you're giving us? So at a glance, and this might just look like a straight line of kingly succession, but on closer inspection, one begins to see some striking lessons, some of which are Five striking lessons we see from this backstory. Number one, no single righteous king ever led Israel since the separation. That's the first thing we see. None of them were righteous. At least in the southern tribe of Judah, we still used to see righteous kings in between or righteous kings. For the northern tribe of Israel, no single righteous king, not even one, from Jeroboam to Ahab, not one. Number two, the second thing we begin to see is that all of these kings, because of their unrighteousness, God was always sending prophets to them. So God and most of the prophecy 
that the prophets were giving to them were centered on the kings alone. So like, for example, when God sent the prophet to Jeroboam, the prophet prophesied concerning Jeroboam and his family. So many a times, the consequences of the actions of these kings was not yet statewide. It was still locked up within the confines of their family. That's the second thing we see. The third thing we see is that of the previous six kings, before we got to Ahab, there was no single mention of the name of their wives or the origin of their wives. All of these things are significant. No single mention of their wives or the origin of their wives. Now, the fourth thing we see is that while many of these kings built city as their individual base of operation, it was said that Omri built Samaria, and the meaning of Samaria is watchtower. The meaning of Samaria is watchtower. It was almost like a parallel of Zion, the city of God. Now, let me jump ahead of myself. And one of the things you begin to understand about watchtowers is that watchtowers are supposed to be beacons of light that shines on the sea to guide pilgrims that would have been lost to stay humble. That is the essence of watchtower. So watchtower is supposed to be an abingo of light that will guide pilgrims to stay humble. But guess what? Now imagine if what is supposed to be the watchtower, which is light, is now darkness. What do you think will be the resultant effect of that watchtower upon the pilgrims who are lost? Hmm. And another thing we begin to understand about cities in scripture is that every time cities are mentioned in scripture, it is an indicator of a civilization or a culture. And from elementary studies, we understand that culture is the way of life of a certain people. So by the time we juxtapose culture, that is cities, with the name of the city that Omri was building, we can easily deduce that Omri was building a watchtower of darkness. Hmm. Now, that was what Omri achieved. He built a watchtower of darkness because he was not a godly man or a godly king. Now, look at the fifth thing we learned. That's the fourth thing we learned. The fifth thing we learned is, now, immediately that city became operational, huh? and Ahab succeeded Omri. See, once darkness became operational, the next thing for darkness to do, see, the next phase of darkness after being operational is for, um, what's the word? I'm looking for the word now. It's for it to spread. It's for it to reproduce. And this is, the, this is why when it got to Ahab, we saw the first mention of a drive. Because every time, when you are reading scripture, every time you see the mention of a man and a bride, it means that there's always the advent of a seed. One of the fundamental ways we study the Bible is the Bible rarely calls a husband and a wife if a seed is not on the horizon. So every time you see that scripture calls the name of a man and the name of his wife, before you read few chapters down the line, there is a seed, there is a child that is coming. So what, what do you now see here? You now see that immediately the operations of the watchtower of um, Samaria became a king. The next thing we saw is Ahab and Jezebel. So the mandate of Ahab and Jezebel was to now begin to spread that dysfunction. So you see, the progression we see in the line of kingly succession in Israel was that the dysfunction was first in families. Now, when the dysfunction now moved from families to become operational in a city, 
darkness now thought it was time for that dispensation to gain latitude by spreading. And that is why there was the introduction of a man and a woman. There was now an introduction of a man and a woman. And what did that man and woman do? They wanted him back a male first deity, Anastera, the female equivalent. So when the male first deity and the female equivalent comes together, they are supposed to bring progenitors of darkness and dysfunction. Hmm. Praise God. Hallelujah. Are we still here? Are we still together? See, and how do we know that Jezebel was going to sponsor? Jezebel was going to sponsor this dysfunction. You begin to investigate. The scripture gave us a clue. The Bible gave us a clue. The Bible was specific to say Jezebel was the daughter of Etabal, the king of the Sidonians. And you see, you now begin to ask, where did these Sidonians come from? Where did these Sidonians come from? And I will show you where these Sidonians come from. Now, let's quickly run to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16 to 18. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16 to 18. Because one of the things you begin to see in that scripture, because I, I, I don't just want to quote it offhand, I'll, I'll read from here. So, but of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God give you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remains alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Evites, the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. It says, let they teach you to do according to all the abominations that they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. One of the things we begin to see in Deuteronomy that long before Ahab, long before Solomon, long before Israel even had a king, God had given a command to Moses that, see, when you are entering this Canaan, wipe out these people. Remember what I said about narrative. Wipe out these people. And God gave them the reason why they should wipe them. Look, he said in verse 18, he says, let they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods. Guess what Israel did? Judges chapter 1, verse 27 to 36. Judges chapter 1, 27 to 36. Now, look at verse 27 of Judges chapter 1. It says, however, the Bible says, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshin and its village, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibrahim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass that when Israel was strong. Now, let's just, for lack of for time, uh, let's just jump to 31. Look at what the Bible says in verse 31. It says, Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon. Are you saying? Right? Who did not drive out the inhabitants of Sidon? The tribe of Asher. They did not drive out the inhabitants of Sidon. So, now, somebody might not be asking, okay, Pastor so they did not drive out the inhabitants of Sidon. But why did they not drive out the inhabitants of Sidon? Please follow me carefully. Please follow me carefully. Let's go to Judges chapter 18, verse 7. I will show you the reason why they did not drive out the inhabitants of Sidon. Judges chapter 18, verse 7. Now, the Bible now told us how Sidon looked like. 
And from here, you cannot begin to deduce why the tribe of Asher were sympathetic towards them. The Bible says, so five men departed and went to Laish. They saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in a manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. Hmm. So what we begin to see here is that God gave Israel a direct command huh, to destroy all the cities completely so that they will not entice them away from the path of God. But we now saw that Israel partially obeyed that instruction. And perhaps the reason why Israel partially obeyed that instruction is simply because in the city of Laish, we saw a comparison between the people of Laish and the people of Sidon. And the people of Laish were quiet, just like the people of Sidon, and they looked harmless. So, and their demeanor now gave Israel a basis. So, perhaps God said, kill these people, but they did not look like they were harmful. They looked harmless. They looked like, hmm. Uh, God, why we ask us to kill such nice people now? Why we ask us to... So they were now becoming more sympathetic than God as though they had a full understanding of the knowledge of those people that God is not privy to. And you see, this is the first lesson we are going to learn here, that there are many instructions that God is giving to us. But many a times, we think we have a better understanding of the narratives, even better than God, who is giving us those instructions. One thing we fail to realize is that within his nature as God, God has the capacity to see the omega dimension of any alpha instruction is given unto us. But guess what the people of Israel did? Oh, Sidon looks quiet. They look harmless. Then their quietness and their harmlessness or perceived harmlessness now became the basis for planting the command of the Lord because they had a skewed narrative blazed on fleshy assumptions. So every time our narrative is blazed on fleshy assumptions, ah, there's a very high tendency that we're on the path to flouting the command of God. Amen. So, you see, one pastor captures it very well. His name is Pastor GK uh, on, on Twitter. He said something. He said, before sin, and I'd like us to just pay attention to this quote. He said, before a sin, he said, Satan will tempt you to believe that repentance will be very easy. And we will not conquer Sidon. God will just forgive us and God will just allow us to live with them. See, so before sin, Satan will tempt you to believe that repentance is very easy. Last last, I will just tell God sorry. Look at the second side. They now say, after a sin, Satan will not tempt you to believe that repentance is in vain. I'll take that again. Before a sin, Satan will tempt you to believe that repentance will be very easy. And after a sin, Satan will now tempt you to believe that repentance is in vain. And this is exactly the ploy that devil used in preserving freedom until the time when he was ready to strike, when Ahab became king. Because you understand the concept of marriage. The Bible says, can two walk together, Amos chapter 3, verse 3, unless they be agreed. Imagine Ahab, the descendant of the nation of Israel, which was the people of God, now agreeing with Jezebel of darkness, Abba. We know what they will bring out of that union. Now, after this place in Judges, the next time we saw Sidon, because now we are investigating the history of Sidon. Huh? The next time we saw Sidon is in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1 to 2. 1 Kings 11, 1 to 2. Manosi, Papa. Shepherd. 
The Bible says, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughters of as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. Look at the women. Women of Moabite one, Ammonites two, Edomites three, Sidonians four, and Ethites. Look at verse two. It says, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor them with you. Surely they will turn your heart after their ancestors. So the Sidon that the tribe of Asher refused to destroy. This is by far one of the wisest kings and Israel's best man. Those same people now sponsored first the breaking of the kingdom of God. The same Sidon that looked harmless, they co-sponsored the breaking of God's kingdom by infiltrating Solomon's life. This was the Sidon that if they are destroyed, Solomon will not have anybody to look forward to in partnering with in that sense. Praise God. And perhaps you are now wondering that Abba now, Sidon was only a co-sponsor. What do they represent in itself? By the time we got to Ahab, hmm? in 1 Kings chapter 16, from verse, ah, where is that verse? 1 Kings chapter 16, from verse 31, we now begin to see another ambassador of Sidon. Her name is Jezebel. In Jezebel, we now begin to understand the perspective of God concerning the Sidonians and why that instruction was to destroy them. Because we see three main features in the life of Jezebel and by extension in the life of Sidonians. The first thing we see is that they are steeped in idolatry. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 32. Sidonians and idolatry, they are five and six. They have no inkling towards God. Number two, the other distinction we now see in Sidonians is they have no regard for the sanctity of human life. Because when we got to Obadiah, what was the first thing Obadiah said? He said, when Jezebel killed the prophet of the Most High God, first Kings chapter 18, verse 13, and first Kings chapter 21, verse 8 to 15, he said, I said some like about a hundred. Then the third thing we see is that they sponsor idolatry and debauchery with the aim of institutionalizing them in culture. So apart from the fact that they are steeped in idolatry and they have no regard for the sanctity of human life, still gone and their ambassadors do not stop there. Their far-reaching goal is to institutionalize that, that dysfunction and make it a culture such that people will no longer have a path to God. Such that people will no longer have a path to God. And you see, one of the things we begin to see is that immoral and idolatry is one side of a coin. The other side of that coin called idolatry is called immorality. And I'm going to explain. If we want to define immorality according to biblical context, immorality is simply the partnership or fellowship of man and elements outside of God's will with the intent of birthing dysfunction and debauchery to the end that darkness is institutionalized within a sphere of oppression or community or territory. 
So every time in scripture, eh, you begin to see idolatry functioning. Immorality was not found. And how do I know this? When you go to Exodus chapter 32, from verse 1 to 6, the Bible told us that when Moses was upon the mouth of the Lord, receiving instruction for Israel, the people said, what has happened to this man called Moses? Eh, because of time, I will not go there for us to read it. Then what happened? The Bible says Aaron collected gold from all of them and he made a golden calf. Then guess what the Bible says? If you read from the NASB Bible, which is one of the most accurate translations of the Bible, the Bible says, and Israel behaved in a lewd manner. The spelling there is L-E-W-D, and we know what lewd means. So you see, Israel at the time were given to idolatry, and what idolatry began to sponsor is immorality. So what this simply means is that one is giving to idolatry, the physical coefficient of idolatry in any life is immorality. So when you begin to know that one is steeped in the worshipping of idols, it's that by default the manifestations of idolatry in the flesh is immorality. Because it's almost impossible for one to engage the act of immorality without first exalting an idol in his heart. And you see, the reason why idolatry and immorality works hand in hand is because idolatry is the dysfunction. Immorality is the catalyst for its spread. So, idolatry is the dysfunction, but immorality, sexual perversion, is the catalyst that sponsors its spreading. Are we not seeing those parallels in our world today? That the minute civilizations begin to draw attention away from the southeast of God, the next thing that plagues that civilization is that there is a widespread immorality that is sweeping through that civilization with the aim of forcing everybody to now become like them so that that dysfunction will now become culture. Hmm. We are going somewhere. Oh, we are going somewhere. Praise God. So, like I said, one of the big deductions we can see from this scripture is that idolatry and immorality, they are two sides of the coin. Engaging one is accepting the other. And Jezebel embodied all the tenets of idolatry and immorality. In fact, when Jehu the prophet was coming to kill Jezebel, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30, the Bible says the first thing she did was she now painted her eyes and was trying to look all all open with the aim of seducing the guy. Thank God the guy no look in face. Now that same Jezebel was now joined with Ahab in marriage with the aim of producing seed after their kind. And guess who they targeted? They targeted Ahab the king because they understand that in his office as a king, he has that capacity to be able to cause that dysfunction to become culture. So from this point of the teaching, I'll be referring to the partnership of Ahab and Jezebel as the Ahabic Jezebel partnership. And you see, <clears throat> remember what Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 23. Only as with a watchtower, I'll be a watchtower of darkness. Ahab has partnered with Jezebel in order to cause that dysfunction to spread. And look at what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 23. He says, if the light indeed be darkness, he says, how dark is that darkness? 
What this simply means in this context is that imagine if the watchtower that was supposed to lead people to the above called God, because Proverbs 33 verse 10 tells us the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous one is that safe. If what is supposed to be in that watchtower instead of light is darkness, what do you think will now be the state of the pilgrims that are lost? Hmm. You see, the potential of this dysfunction on a grand scale was what necessitated the rising of Elijah. This dysfunction and its seeming potential to become culture was what God saw in heaven. And he said, mm -mm. and Elijah must arise to stay the onslaught of this passion. So you see, you and I, we are Elijah parallels. The reason why there is a rising, the reason why there is a demand for our rising is simply because of the dangerous demonic potential of the Ahabic Jezebels in our world. And remember the story of the dog, the stone, and the father. How do you think God's response and his Elijah's response will be to this dysfunction? Do you think we'll be calm and say, oh, okay, oh, hey, yeah, people are worshiping idols. Oh, that's not good. Oh. Mm. Let them give their life to Christ. Do you think that is the response? Was that, so when that dog was coming to the father, to the son, do you think the response of the father is, oh, good dog, good dog, don't be a bad dog, don't be a bad dog, don't bite, don't bite, don't bite, you are a good dog, you are a good dog. Do you think that was the response of the father to the dog? Remember my story. The father took the rod and he smashed the head of the dog with the aim of stopping the dysfunction just as it's charging. And now you begin to have a correct perspective of why Elijah's are confrontational. Hey, it's for this okay, let's see time. Now you begin to see why Elijah's cannot be anything else but confrontational. To the Arabic Jezebel parallels that we see in our world. Hmm. See, the potential of the dysfunction eh, is why the approach of Elijah must be fierce. Because darkness is not supposed to be reasoned with. You cannot reason with darkness. Light shines. That's what the Bible says. And darkness cannot comprehend. Darkness cannot be reasoned with. Tell your neighbor that oh you cannot reason with darkness. They understand only one language, and that is the language of confrontation. Praise God. Now, and aside confrontation, there is something else we must do to darkness. I'm getting towards the culmination of this teaching now, and I'd like us to pay close attention. We must also make a public spectacle of darkness. See, this is why Elijah did not confront Ahab privately. Testing chapter 18, Elijah confronted that dysfunction. Because you see, that dysfunction was already becoming culture. Israel did not know who to serve again. And Elijah said, you Ahab, I know your wife has been abhorring over 400 prophets of Baal. Many more are eating at the table. Oh yeah, call them out. And I will stand for the Lord. 
and we will do an open show before the people so that they will know what to sound, so that nobody can claim ignorance. So many a times, this our desire for doing our Christianity in private might just simply be making the watchtower of darkness have a field day. If Elijah refused to confront publicly, oh, darkness will have a field day. Darkness will have a field day. You cannot, you cannot reason with darkness. All right. Question. Now, and another question we see, because we will say, ah, it's a little Elijah that confronted uh, publicly now. Jesus did not do that thing now. He said, ah, Jesus did it. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. The Bible says, he made an open show of them, open show, public spectacle of darkness, triumphing over them. You see, so what Elijah did was an adumbration of what Jesus Christ will come to do. Having spoiled principalities and power, he made an open show of them, triumphing over them. See, you cannot listen with darkness. So, I will not dwell so much on this because I believe there are still many more installments in this series. So, I believe other pastors will dwell so much on the confrontation of darkness and how we can employ the protocols of public spectacle in exposing darkness. All I just want to let us understand is the mandate of Elijah. And I'd like you to listen carefully to this, the mandate of Elijah. The mandates of Elijah are to confront a habit Jezebels and their vices so that their campaign of institutionalizing death is rendered ineffective amongst God's people. And we do this by shining the light of God and also showing people the path to that light. This is the mandate of Elijah. I'll take that again. The mandate of Elijah, which is you and I, are to confront Ahabic Jezebels and their vices so that their campaign of institutionalizing death is rendered ineffective. Because if we do not confront them, we cannot cause their campaign to be ineffective against God's people. And we do this. How we do this is by shining the light of God and also showing people the path to that light. Praise God for everyone. There are many parallels of Ahabic Jezebels in our world today. And as Elijah parallels, we must confront them. And I also like to state at this point that Ahabic Jezebel parallels can also be internal as much as they are external. So you might be thinking, oh, it is all external. It is all external. It is not in me. It's not peak. It's not in me. I agree with you. But sometimes, sometimes, the Ahabic Jezebel profiles can be internal. And I'm going to show us. So what this means is that at any time that we begin to find locking in our members, leanings that are trying to take us away from the path of light into the abyss of darkness, we need to confront them sternly with the aim of eliminating them so that our light is not snuffed out. And in doing this, we must remember Moses' admonition to Israel on how things should be able. Remember what Proverbs chapter 25 verse 2 told us. That it is the glory of God to conceal the matter. It is the honor of kings to search it out. You and I are kings. The Bible told us in Revelation that he has ordained those kings and priests unto God to rule over the earth. But guess what? Before we ever became king, Moses, God gave Moses instructions on how kings should be. 
and this is where we are going to be wrapping up tonight's teaching. Let's quickly run to Deuteronomy chapter 17. We'll be reading from verse 16 to 20. And I'm showing us how kings should behave. So I've told us how to confront outward dysfunction or outward Ahabic Jezebel dysfunctions. Now, this one is how to address Ahabic Jezebel dysfunctions that sometimes are internal. Sometimes you check your life huh? and you begin to see some profiles that are that the aim is to get you away from God. Those are a happy Jezebel profiles locking within your members. You need to address them sternly. And I'm going to show you five, five of those profiles that we need to pay attention to. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16 to 20. I'll read from the NIV. The king, moreover, must not acquire great number of horses for himself. This was Moses speaking to the children of Israel and by extension to us. I'll start again. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Why are you reading this? You are hearing Solomon. I say that again. You are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amount of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on his throne a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priest. It is to be with him and is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and this decree and, and this decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time in Israel. Now, let me break down that scripture as we begin to wrap up. In taking heed to yourself as a king, in taking heed to yourself as a king, one must be wary of these internal vices. And there are five of them. The first one, overly giving to material pursuits at the expense of kingdom, especially when those pursuits might mean reenacting the protocols of that which you were once delivered from. You know, one of the first things the Bible said, or one of the things the scripture says, is that he that put his hand on the plow and looks back, he said, my soul has no delight in it. Now, in his admonition to the children of Israel, Moses told them, or God told them through Moses, that they must not acquire a great number of horses, or they are not to go back to Egypt. The implication of that statement is that you must not pursue material gain at the expense of the kingdom. And you must especially pay attention to when those material pursuits are now making you to reenact the protocols of those things you were delivered from. Just to give, imagine God has rescued you from an habit and you're not saying, oh, Christianity is boring. I think this was exactly what Israel was doing. God delivered them from Egypt and they were longing for Egypt. And their hearts could not enter into glory. Neither would their lives enter into the glory of God. They had to die in the wilderness. So the first thing we must be wary of, especially when we are looking at the internal coefficient of a habit Jezebel, I have just five minutes left, is that we must be wary on how we pursue this thing called material gains, especially when it's at the expense of kingdom. Draw your ear and say, oh boy, be wary of the way you pursue this. I must blow, I must blow, I must blow. It's okay, but at the expense of what? Is it by all means? See, when you I must blow, 
I started inculcating by all means inside. Brother, watch it. Watch it. Let's see that. Have. Yes, let them hear. And you see that from Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. You can read that up. Number two. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unrighteousness. Remember, he says, you, are, you must not take many wives, or his heart must be led astray. The Bible told us, do not be unequally yoked with unrighteousness. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Who are your friends? Who are your the people within your close circle? Remember what the Bible says: Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. He must not be unequally yoked. See, that's what the Bible says. Because the Bible told us that in the multitude of counsel of their safety, it says the companions of fools will be destroyed. Is that not the agenda of Ahabic Jezebel? To destroy one. That's number two. Number three, it says you must avoid mammon. Look at what he said. He said, a king, go, you are a king. So this is what God is saying, a king should be. He said, he must not accumulate large amount of silver and gold when he takes the turn of his kingdom. Jesus now told us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 to 25, he says, do not store up your treasures here on earth where moth and caterpillars can easily destroy. He says, store up your treasures in heaven. For where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. Amen. Avoid mammon. Because in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 to 25, we begin to see that a man cannot serve two masters. He will love one and despise the other. Hmm. I won't dwell much on that. Then the first three are warnings. The last two are admonitions. Now, or the last two are what we are encouraged to do. So he now said, maintain a delight in God's law. Look at what he said. He said, he's to write for himself on a stone a copy of this law that he may revere the Lord his God and follow carefully. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. This book of the Lord shall not depart out of my mouth. I shall meditate on it day and night. Then I may observe to do according to all that is written therein. He said, for then I will make my way prosperous and then I shall have good success. Psalm 1, verse 2 to 3. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On it does he meditate day and night. It is then his life shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Number five, he says, you must love others to the extent of showing them the path of life. Remember what Ephesians chapter 6 verse 15 said? He said, your feet stored with the readiness for the gospel of peace. And Mark chapter 12, from 30 to 31, he says, love God. Then how you demonstrate your love for God is that you love your neighbor. So whilst you are maintaining a delight in God's love, you must also love people to the extent that you are willing to show them the path of life. It is, these are the way you garrison your heart and you guide and address any potential of a habit Jezebel parallels within your own life. Praise God. Now, the act of public or outward confrontation of darkness and the act of private or inward confrontation of potential darkness must be employed by Elijah's in their promotion of life. And this must be done with a full understanding of God's divine perspectives or narrative. So that we can live a life that is only pleasing to God and lead others to do likewise. Ladies and gentlemen, the title of this teaching is Confronting the Ahabic Jezebels. Confronting the Ahabic Jezebels. All that we have just stated in the last one hour or in the last few minutes is how we can garrison our heart 
in protecting the potential of a habit Jezebel eroding our lives, then after we have successfully done that, how we can now confront the external habit Jezebel we see everywhere to the end that will cause the light of God to shine. And that watchtower of darkness will be pulled down. May the Lord bless his word in our heart and he give us wisdom to be able to exemplify this truth in a manner that will cause us the best reality that consistent with godliness in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, what a word. For more messages, connect with our tribesmen across all social media platforms at PowerPoint Tribe.